Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is Chris Tannehill, and I'm sitting here with, uh, I'll let Brock disclose the rest of his name to you, just out of respect for anonymity, but we're going to talk today uh, about uh, recovery and youth, and I'm very careful about what I say about that, because I tried to get sober when I was 20, and I was not able to do that, and for a lot of you folks, you might not realize, um, well, to look at me, especially on radio and or podcast, uh, I'm one year shy of 50. Brock, Brock, are you 23? I'm 24. Brock, Brock's 24. So we're going to talk from that, and you'll get some history on him in one second. But what I've learned, folks, is it's not the years, it's the mileage, but we want to talk about, uh, you know, recovery and being young and dealing with that. So, um, well, first off, I'd just like to say, uh, Brock, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name's Brock. I'm 24 years old, uh, five and a half years clean and sober, and... Uh, Glad to be here. Brock, you uh, you also work in treatment, correct? I do, for the last four years. Okay, so you're, you're definitely qualified to talk here. And uh, let's just go into a little history uh, right now. Um, one of the questions I had told you I was possibly going to ask you was describe a typical day in your life before you started getting loaded, but apparently that was, uh, what, how old were you, 11? Yeah, I mean, the earliest memory of me not being loaded would probably be about 10 or 11 years old. Um, because at, at once I started at 11, it was a pretty regular basis of me being under the influence of something. Okay. Why don't we just start from there? Let's uh, talk about how you started. Uh, I never did anything in small quantities. It was always excessive. So my first, uh, my first drink, aside from like maybe a sip of a beer on a camping trip, was uh, I took my mom's entire glass handle of Jack Daniels and... My mom drinks pretty heavily, so I see her drink out of these tall boy cups, and I assumed that that's how much I should be drinking. And so me and a friend of mine just polished off the whole thing, and I got sick as a dog, but I just remember loving the feeling immediately. Well, I'll tell you what, that's, that's a good start, and that would make you the real deal at this point. So uh, describe a typical day now in the life of, uh, I don't know, 13, 14-year-old Brock, who's now had some experience in getting loaded. Uh, the typical day in your life. Uh, 13 and 14, it was, at that point, I was pretty well versed in just about all the drugs that I had wanted to try. Because once I found that I could change the way that I was feeling, I just became infatuated with the entire scope of everything I could try. And 13 or 14, I had done a pretty good amount of damage to myself as far as what I had tried. And Were, we, were you smoking? Were you just, yeah. exactly what were you doing? At that point, I had already started getting into cocaine, Xanax on a regular basis at school, um, smoke weed every day, drink on the weekends. Okay. Did anybody notice? Um, at that point, my grades were still fairly good because school was just easy for me okay. that young. So family was still pretty unaware, um, aside from me kind of checking out, not being as involved in sports, friend group probably changing pretty drastically. Um, but... Nobody noticed except for friends who were doing the same thing. Okay. So, how many? How many of uh, how many of you were there at that point doing the same thing? Would you say? Um. Well, at this point, I was in uh, thirteen or fourteen. I had just gotten to Idaho, and so I was in uh, a little town there. A lot of Mormon kids, so I was kind of a a standalone a unicorn. Um, yeah, it's not. <laughs> there's a lot of kids that were pretty well behaved. Um, you know, it doesn't take. A bad family to create an addict, but uh, you know I'm definitely the example of that. Where I just had a great family, great upbringing, was in a good community, but I was just infatuated with 
everything else that there was possible to do. Okay. Okay. So um, let's just stand at 14 for a second, 14, 15. What was your perception of a junkie or a drug addict or an alcoholic at that time in your life? At that point, it was still it was still the cliche of the homeless guy under the bridge, the brown bag, the big beard, you know, ungroomed, just like totally outcasted from society. When did that change? When did, uh, or did it ever change, that view of an addict? Yeah, it changed quickly. Like, I think around 16 or 17 when I was really heavy into everything, um, at that point, I had been called an addict so much that I began to absorb the power in that statement, and I would call myself an addict before somebody could call me that. So I started realizing that an addict can be just about anybody, and the way for me to take some of the the harshness from that blow off of me was to be like, well, yeah, I am an addict, and I'm the best one that you're ever going to meet. Did you did you believe you could stop? Did you believe you had control at that time? That you know this gets bad enough, I'm going to lock the brakes up, but until then, I'm having fun. Or what was what was your uh, what was your view of life at that point? I probably thought that I could stop, but it was never even a thought in my mind. It was I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life because why wouldn't I? There was no negative consequences associated with that yet, so there was no reason for me to believe that that couldn't be a major part of my life until I was old. Was it fun? Absolutely. You know, the uh, it's one of the things I get when I speak to anybody. Uh, my, my experience being younger, yeah, we wind the clock back, big deal. But the point was, at first, it wasn't because I'm getting loaded because of some internal intrinsic pain and horrible whatever. It was, this is fun. Now this is fun with problems. Then it just turned into problems, you know. And then I got to look at my life later on, but... Uh, how many of your friends were like you at about age 17, 16, 17? You're now heavily addicted. I mean, and what, what are you heavily addicted to at this time, by the way? Uh, prescription painkillers, um, benzos. So I was doing Xanax every day just to make it through class. Um, I'd black out every day, and then by the time I'd get out, I would do uh, you know, Roxy 30s or original OCs. Well, let me interrupt you. How, how did you afford to get that? Uh, my family's pretty wealthy. Um, I was working from the time I was 14. Um, I had a job at KFC almost through my entire addiction. Um, never lost a job, never got fired. I don't know how I was faking myself into being manageable, but uh, but it was enough to keep me afloat for a little bit. you got to love the colonel for a couple things. The uh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, how, how were your other friends who could not afford that? How were they acquiring anything to stay high? You just sell enough to make yours back you know you get you know 30 pills or whatever you sell you know 26 of them off the bat and then you're four or free okay and you just become the middleman for the people who are less knowledgeable or not as connected were you at all any at any point here up to up to 17 did you ever feel any desperation mm, not yet desperation to what to get clean for anything desperation to find more okay yeah, I mean, the tolerance was there. Were you experiencing withdrawal symptoms? Yeah. Did you know what they were at the time? Not not in depth. Like, I wasn't, I didn't understand what was happening inside of my body, but I did understand that I am sick because I'm not high. Okay. No, that's perfect. Let me ask, let me shift gears here for a little bit, uh, and you can go back to whatever age you're at, but at what point um, the impact of social media on you and your friends 
did that have any role to play in getting loaded? Did that perpetuate anything? Did it make it harder, easier? I don't think that social media really did anything as far as why I was getting loaded or anything like that. But I definitely think that with a younger generation, like AA is like, you know, it's written in these terms from the 30s and it's so much past what a young guy is focused on. You mean like dungarees, keister, yeah, all those things? Yeah, I get it. That's right. well beyond my scope. But <laughs> when you're, you know, you're coming up and I was, I should have graduated high school in 2013. So when you're younger like this, social media and like, I don't know, just the the things that kids value nowadays is so much different than back then. And the stigma that, you know, I can't look past these people aren't going to be my friends in four years. Like, you associate that with, like, your identity and that's your life. Okay, then let me ask this question. How far ahead could you envision your life at this time? Could you envision yourself at 25, 30, or could you only get, you know— Six months ahead at best. What's your what's your experience? I mean, at the end where it was, well, I was getting sick a lot. It was pretty morbid. I was pretty convinced that I wasn't going to live too old. Like I knew that this wasn't exactly healthy for me. But um, did you, you know, care? Si- no. Did you care about what your family or anyone else thought? No, because the when I did look ahead in my life, the only thing I was looking forward to was getting done with school moving, you know, away from my family. I wanted the pressure to stop doing what I was doing to be gone. Like, I wanted to be able to just, you know, check out, isolate, get loaded without the constant badgering of, you know, you're ruining your life and this and that. It's like, no one wants to be down all the time. Like, I was trying to enjoy myself. As (laughs) Folks, we're talking about the upside of drug addiction at this point. And I know how long that lasts, but... Let me let me shift gears again for you. What was your reaction to authority figures? Uh, I didn't have any respect for them because there there was no there was no identity like I couldn't identify with any authority figures in my life. Did anybody ever come to your school to help with um, information on addiction and or prevention or trying to help? With, did anyone show up that you could have reached out to? Uh, not that you can reach out to, but like all the schools, like we had. I don't know if it was a D.A.R.E. program or what it was, but it was just like, you know, the local police come by. They bring somebody through. They're all, like, in their 50s. They're like, you know, like Nancy Reagan, like, just say no. Like, stop hanging out with those kids. Like, that's not – you're not going to reach an adolescent 17-year-old, you know, opiate addict by doing that. Like, you get laughed out the gym. And uh, so I didn't didn't respect any of the people they had, you know, trying to bridge that gap because it's just – it wasn't going to happen. You're not – you're not coming up in the same time frame. You're not doing the same drugs. You're not, you know, in the same, you know, like there's a culture gap. There's just too much that you can't bridge. Yeah. And, and like I said, people, people do those three things. They try and love, educate, or punish us. And at that age, obviously it doesn't work. Could anyone have changed your mind? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say could they have, but if somebody was going to, it had to have been somebody with experience. Yeah, like I needed somebody that was that I could see myself in. Like I can't look at a fifty year old and be like, Yeah, like I relate to getting I have to sleep on the couch tonight. Like, no, I'm seventeen years old, I don't relate to that. Or like I'm gonna come home and kick the dog. Like that's not that's not the same thing. I need somebody that, you know, has either seen the worst of the consequences and is coming from prison or something like that, or is on the other side of like, okay, like 
I was as sick as you, and now I'm you know this many years removed, and I'm five years, ten years sober. This is how I did it, and then shoot it to me straight. I don't want the. This is what alcohol does to your brain, but like I don't need the education. You don't need the bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So no, I, I you know I get that, and I, I remember that, and that's never changed in my you know even to my vantage point at this age. The uh, what was your experience at school, and what what did you observe from other people that are doing what you're doing? Um. I don't know. Like most of the people that were doing what I was doing, just dropped out and stopped going to school. I don't know why I continued to go to school. I think it was because I had so much pressure to graduate. Okay. So I would just get loaded and show up to school. Um, many of my teachers were aware. My principal was well aware. My vice principal was well aware. I mean, they pulled me into the office at one point. They're like, "The school roster has 356 students for your graduating class. Do you know what you know number you are on the rank?" And I'm like, "No." And she's like, "Congratulations, you're 356." You know, between attendance and grades, because, you know, you take two or three Xanax bars and go into class, I'd black out. I mean, I don't remember almost any of my high school career. I, I literally <laughs> was not present. I'm laughing out of identification. Yes. Please but, yeah, there weren't, there weren't too many peers of mine, because at that point, they had all kind of given up on graduating. And some part of me still wanted to graduate, so I'd show up and be present. And that kept my grades at a passing level, just being there. But anytime I took a test or anytime I did anything, like I got kicked out of class most of the time. I got, I mean, it was just inevitable. Well, when when did it stop being fun? Uh, it stopped being fun when the means to get more became too challenging because the tolerance builds. You need more to get high. You need more for the feeling that you're looking for, and for. Somebody 17, 18 years old with a dependence like that, it's almost impossible to keep that, you know, income or keep that amount of drugs into my system. So I was always feeling sick. I wasn't I wasn't getting the, you know, the high or the effect I was searching for. I was just getting enough to not be deathly sick. Okay. Why did you try to stop the first time? I mean, the first time that I got sober was more just pressure from loved ones, family, you know, you know, it, it's not that I didn't care what they thought. I still, you know, have much love for my family and I did then, but I couldn't separate the two. Like I was so much, I, I, on the scale of things that were important to me, getting loaded, excuse me, and staying loaded were so much more important than what my family thought. And I think when they, you know, did their little half-assed intervention, it was like, okay, like I'll go. Because I just didn't want to hear the conversation anymore. Not because I wanted to go. I was like, all right, I'll just do this. I'll let them think I'm fine. And then I'll continue doing what I was doing. Okay. Again, it makes perfect sense to me sitting where I'm sitting here. Uh, what was your concept before you went of drug treatment or recovery? What was your, what did you see that as? <laughs> uh, I mean, I didn't really have too much of a concept of what it actually was, like the reality of it. Um if anybody's ever seen the movie Half Baked, like that was my perception of what an AA meeting was. I mean, you know, boo this man, and that's that's all I really knew. I didn't I didn't I didn't know that it was a legitimate thing that people went to, and I didn't know that treatment. I guess I knew treatment existed, but I didn't really know what it entailed. And when I got there, I just checked out. I mean, none of the information stuck. I manip I manipulated my way through the whole thing just to get the pressure off my back. I didn't want to hear the you know you're affecting me this way and this and that like I just wanted to get 
the pressure off of me to continue doing what I was doing. And I felt like that would buy me enough time to do so. Okay. Before we stop here, and we're going to stop in one second, because we're going we're gonna to do this two more times, but describe for us, for those folks listening, uh, the lead up to going to treatment, getting there. And I know you left your first treatment center. Is that correct? I did, yeah. Describe that, and then you made a comeback. Yeah. And did it stick after that? Uh, unfortunately, no, no. I had one more one more stint. Okay, please describe for us just that little rip right there that you went to treatment. Yeah, I mean, I went to a, I went to a treatment center. Um, it was a small little hospital. Um, it was, I mean, I really don't even know. I was so out of it. Um, but it was a detox. And I did seven days of detox. They gave me an option to stay longer. Yeah. Um, but when I was there, I was just 18, like the week of my 18th birthday. And every other person there was a 50-year-old alcoholic. And I just didn't identify. And so six, seven days in, my detox was over. I just checked myself out. I was gone. Um, told my family not to worry. I got everything I needed out of it. I'm good now. Um, with the full intention of knowing that wasn't the truth. Um, I'd say about a month or two after that, um, I went to treatment one more time, uh, not on my own desire. It wasn't my decision. It was another pressure thing. It was like, you know, family's going to cut you off, this and that. Okay, okay, okay. So I went to a, a treatment center in Gooding, Idaho, called the Walker Center. And it was, uh, I still believe that place saved my life. I didn't stay sober after I left that place. Why, why do you say that it saved your life? Um, because in retrospect from the other treatment centers I went to and I've worked for, um, they did things differently. The, the employees, most of them were all volunteer. They were all program. Um, they all came from a place of experience rather than reading out of a book. Um, and I know that that's not necessarily a requirement for people that work in treatment or that are helping others, um, but it definitely helps. You know, we're uniquely qualified to help each other. And I think any advantage you can get to reach someone in a life or death situation like this is, you know, gold. Um, so when I went, it was, you know, no BS. They shot it straight. They weren't there to, you know, love you back to recovery. They definitely loved for you, but um, they weren't there to co-sign anything that wasn't good for your life. They told you how it was and what you needed to do. And if you didn't want to do it, they would send you out. Like they would kick you out. You know, there was co-ed facility women on one side, men on one side. If you looked at women three times, you got three strikes and you'd get kicked out. I mean, it was strict. Wow. I, and I have one more question along those lines. And I know you said that it didn't stick, but obviously it affected you positively. Um, through this process, any thoughts of suicide, homicide? Um, probably not homicidal thoughts, but definitely suicidal thoughts. Um, me personally was never too serious, but I mean, when you get that depressed and that sick and it just becomes morbid, it was just like, you know, do I really want to do this anymore? And it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to harm myself, but I didn't really see other options. Like I didn't know there was an out. I didn't know there was another way to live or to get relief. Cause that's ultimately what I was searching for was just relief. And I thought that the only outlet for that was substances. Okay. So now it was the Walker center. Yeah. Okay. That uh, doesn't stick. Now what's happened? That doesn't stick. Um, but it had a profound impact on me. The, you know, the, the counselors and stuff I had there 
for whatever reason, it just stuck with me. Um, I was still too stubborn to get sober and stay sober. I mean, I relapsed within a week of returning home. Um, same people, same faces, same places. Um, and No chance. No chance. But I'd say about three months-ish, um, just running my life into the ground, um, blacking out for days at a time. I mean, I was killing myself. Did you ever get scared? Yeah. Yeah, I woke up, you know, on my bathroom floor like, like 16 hours later I was in my bathroom and I woke up like you know vomit and bile all over my chest and just I was like what you know what the hell am I doing to myself and uh it was definitely a wake-up call the first two times that that happened to me um but I it still didn't click to me what I needed to do and uh so I had one more uh intervention from my family and this time it wasn't so much I'm just going to stop this conversation because interventions are uncomfortable. They're not, they're not a nice thing to go through. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's people that are closest to you telling you how you've seriously negatively affect their lives. And unless you're like a complete sociopath, like that's pretty hard to listen to. <laughs> yeah. So folks listening, the short version, uh, most interventions, what ends up happening is either you're living with a junkie or an alcoholic and you're drawing lines, boundary lines, and this is how it's going to be, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. Or what you experienced, what seems like they get you together and they threaten that connection they have with you, and here's what we've experienced from you, yeah. and it, contingent upon what you decide here is you know how we're going to move forward. So it's, it's a hell of a threat, but for some people it does not work. For some people it does. And um, I'll tell you what, when we come back, We'll talk about how this uh, actually turned around. And uh, for now, ladies and gentlemen, I um, just want to thank you for your time and your ears. And I want to thank Brock. And, uh, hey, uh, be good to yourselves, okay? <laughs> 